tonight to Psalms chapter 56. Psalms chapter number 56. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of God tonight. A beautiful day, and I was a little on the chilly side, but uh, that's all right. When you're fat like I am, you appreciate a little cool weather. Somebody say amen to that, and uh, I'll sure not be liking it come middle of July, amen. I'll be complaining about the weather then. And uh, I was, uh, Hannah, you're praying about the will of God this summer. I know where the will of God is for you to be on June 7th through the 11th, so you don't even have to pray about that. But it, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, God's people, amen, thankful for a place we can worship, amen. I appreciate our visitors being here. Hope you feel at home in the Lord's house. Psalms chapter 56, and I'd like to read the entirety of this psalm. It's not very long, uh, and we won't use every phrase in it as we preach tonight, but we will uh, span the whole scope of the psalm this evening. Psalms chapter 56, beginning in verse 1, The word of God says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. In God will I praise His word. In the Lord will I praise His word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling? that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you'd take your word tonight and that you'd use it in our hearts. Lord, I've, I've got some thoughts that are on my heart and some things that I desire to say, but Lord, nothing that I could come up with, nothing I could say, no amount of human wisdom uh, could ever touch the human heart, but we know that divine wisdom can. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word tonight and would use it in the hearts and minds of your people, Lord, that he would have free reign and course and liberty to walk and to move and to work amongst these pews and these hearts. Lord, that as we leave this place tonight, we'll know that we've heard from heaven, that we've been made more into the image of Christ, that we've given more of our life over to you. And Lord, that you'll receive the praise, honor, and glory, for it is certainly due to your precious name. And it is in that glorious name that we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few minutes tonight out of Psalms chapter 56. But to frame the message tonight, I don't know, I trust it's in your Bible. Uh, I want you to notice a little description that is given for this psalm uh, before even the first verse is given. And if it's not in your Bible, you ought to get a Bible that it is in. Amen. I believe they ought to be there. Uh, and it says this uh, at the beginning of this psalm. It says, To the chief musician upon Jonath Elam Rehokim, Jonoth Elam Rehokim, a victim of David when the Philistines took him in Gath. Now, these little descriptions that are given for us in the Word of God, they, uh, they reside in the most, uh, you know, ancient places, and I believe that there is some authority that is vested in them. Now, uh, we could probably have an argument about where that ought to stand in the spectrum of uh, things, but I would say this tonight, that when the 
text of the Word of God bears witness and truth with that, I believe we ought to give some credibility to those things. Amen? And when I read through this psalm, there is something interesting I find in this text. And I I don't really want to preach that little description, but I do want to look at it and think about what it says as we preach the Word of God tonight. In this inscription, we notice three things. I want to point them out to you. First, we see the song that is delivered. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, the first phrase here, it says, to the chief musician. A little later, it uses a musical term. It calls it a mictum, which is another word for a poem or a song of praise, a mictum of David. In other words, this, as all the Psalms were, was written for the purpose of public worship. How many of you know God wants His people to worship Him and worship Him publicly? When I read this Psalm, one of the things that strikes me, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but this is not what we'd call a pretty psalm. Say, so what do you mean, preacher? Well, the psalmist talks about his fears, his anxieties, the things that bother him, the things that trouble him. And it's a reminder to me, man, we don't have to be fake in our worship. We don't have to be false in our worship. We can be honest with God. Aren't you glad you can be honest with the Lord tonight? You might as well be honest with Him. He knows you anyway. Amen? And God doesn't expect to expect us in the midst of our worship or our praise of Him uh, to pretend to be something that we're not. Hey, you're struggling? Go ahead and sing to the Lord anyway. You say, preacher, I don't feel like I got much of a song. Well, go ahead and sing your complaints to Him, but don't quit singing. Don't quit worshiping Him. Don't quit praising Him. Go ahead and pour out your complaints. So we see the song that is delivered. Number two we see in this, the circumstances that are described. Now the Bible says here, to the chief musician... When the Philistines took him in Gath. Now who's the him? Well, we know who the him is. It's the one that the Holy Ghost put the pen in his hand. It's David, uh, just as we're told here. And this corresponds wonderfully with what the Word of God teaches, exactly with what the Bible says. You know, there are two instances in David's life where he spent a little time in the Philistine city of Gath. Now I'd remind you that the uh, Philistines were a picture of the world in the Word of God. They are the enemy of the people of God. The name Philistine means to roll around in the dust or the dirt. and It reminds us who the God of this world is. That's the devil. He is likened to a serpent in the Word of God and one that crawls on the dust or rolls in the dust. And the Philistines in the Bible are always the opponents of the people of God. And they picture for us the world system of sin and iniquity. Now let me say something real clear here. God loved the world and gave His only begotten Son for it. I'm going to go ahead and say it again. God loved the world and gave His only begotten Son for it. Isn't that right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever perisheth or that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but of everlasting life. You've probably heard that verse before, if I would guess. God loves the world, but understand the world don't love God. And while we are called upon to uh, to reach those that are lost in their sins and iniquities, uh, because that's exactly what we were before we got born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We never need to forget that the world system does stand in opposition of everything that God stands for. And God stands in opposition of everything that the world stands for. We need to recognize that the world system that lives in rebellion against God is incompatible with the Christian life that God has called us to live. So the Philistines are a picture of the world. And there were two times in the life of David that he dwelt in Gath. One is in 1 Samuel chapter 27, whenever he goes, and he spends about 16 months there, living there, running from uh, King Saul. Uh, he leaves because he's afraid that Saul's going to kill him. Samuel has died, the prophet, and he knows he does not have his protection or support anymore, and he goes and dwells amongst them. 
But before that occasion, there's another time, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'm going to tell you here in a minute why I think that is the instance that is being recognized in this inscription. But let me read a little scripture for you. Here in 1 Samuel 21 and verse 10, this is detailed for us. The Bible says, David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? And they, did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So you understand what happens here. Uh, David runs across some of Achish's men, and they look around and they say, We know who this David is. David is the rightful king of Israel. He's an enemy of the Philistines. We cannot let him go. We need to take him to the king. So that's what they do. They take David. The Bible says... Verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Let me just point out there that David had a beard. Amen. Uh, Verse 14 says, Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, there's two reasons I read that to you. One is because I believe when we read this, the Bible says in Psalms 56, the Philistines took him in Gath. In other words, not that he necessarily went of his own volition, but they took him in Gath. And we read twice there in 1 Samuel 21 that Achish says, you brought him unto me. You brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. So I think that's probably what the psalmist is talking about. But there's another reason that I want to bring that up because this mark, one of the first lapses in David's spiritual life. When he went to Gath, he did so because he was afraid of Saul. When we read Psalms 56, we can hear that fear, can't we? He's talking about how his enemies are round about and how they're laying wait for him, how they want to slay him. And he finally finds victory in faith and says, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. But it's apparent from Psalms 56 He is not in a place that he feels comfortable. When you read the account in 1 Samuel 27 when he comes back to Gath, he just lives there like it's his home. In fact, Achish Achish gives him a city to dwell in, Ziklag. That's a city that the Ammonites burned, you remember. Uh, But uh, this first time, he is afraid for his life. Now, here in a second, you'll understand why we pointed that out. But we see in this the song that is delivered. We see the circumstances that are described. But then there's a mysterious word found in this little inscription. We, we, we had to even slow down, say it on purpose, so we didn't say it wrong. Now, let, let's notice it again. To the chief musician upon, and here's a big old $10 word, upon Jonath Elam Rahokam. Jonath Elam Rahokam. I'd venture a guess that's probably not living in the dictionary in most of our minds. But we do not have to go far to understand what that means. Now, it's very often when we read the book of Psalms and in these little inscriptions that are given, there will be a word or there'll be a phrase that'll help us to understand what was going on in the psalmist's heart and mind when he pinned it down. I understand it's the words of the Holy Ghost. But I also recognize God did not forego the minds and experiences of the uh, of the penman of the Word of God, but rather He infused those experiences with inspiration. So what David is going through informs us a little bit about this psalm. Now that name, that word, Jonoth Elam Rehokim, is interesting. Can I tell you what it means? It means this, the silent dove of far off places. The silent dove 
of far off places. So in other words, if we were reading this in in plain language, we would say this to the chief musician, when the silent dove is in far off places, a mictum or a poem of David, when the Philistines took him in game. Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, that's good, and I appreciate the Bible lesson, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about that phrase, that silent dove of far-off places, uh, that begins to churn some things up in my mind. For instance, when we think about a dove in the Word of God, we're not lost on what the imagery and meaning of a dove is. We could go all the way back to Noah and the ark and the dove that was released uh, to go out into the world. We could go to the doves that were given as a part of a sacrifice in the Old Testament when a person was too poor to offer a lamb uh, or a bullock, they could offer a turtle dove. But there's one passage that jumps out to me, and I bet it's already, if you're a student of the Bible, you're probably already thinking of it. But can I read it to you? It's found in Luke chapter 3, and it's at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. Listen to what the Bible says in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Now, here's David. David is a man of God. He is a believer. He he is uh, someone that has been justified. The Bible says that righteousness has been imputed unto him. He, he knows God. He has believed in God. I am well aware that at this time in human history, men were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But David was a man that had a, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us many times that the Holy Spirit of God moved upon David when he prophesied and when he was at war and so on and so forth. David is a man, that though he wasn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he was in touch with the Holy Spirit. He knew who the Holy Spirit was and how He worked in a person's life. You remember, He talks about in Psalms 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So David's a man that knows what it is to have an intimate relationship with God that involves the Holy Spirit. And now here's this man, this believer in God. He's allowed his flesh to gain victory over him. He's living in fear. He's living in unbelief. And he has fled into the arms of a pagan king rather than trusting in the glorious God of all creation. And now he finds himself far away from his home and in a place where all of a sudden this dove, this one, this means how God speaks to him, is silent in his life. You know, there's three times in the New Testament that the Bible warns us about how we can damage our fellowship with the Lord and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now let me just give you a little New Testament theology. In the New Testament we understand that uh, the Holy Spirit, He's not on us or around us or before us or behind us, but the Bible tells us we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm thankful to say and report tonight that that Holy Spirit of God, it don't matter how bad we sin, it don't matter what we do, it don't matter how far out we get, He's not going to run, He's not going to leave, He's not going to go anywhere in our lives. He's present there in our lives. He indwells us. The Bible tells us we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise under the day of redemption. If you're born again, saved by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and He is not going anywhere. But I would also say tonight that just because He ain't going nowhere, that does not mean we cannot hinder our relationship with Him. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 7, whenever Stephen's preaching uh, to that rabid crowd in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. I know the Calvinists want us to believe we can't resist the Holy Ghost. 
uh, but they're going to have a problem with Acts 7.51 because it flat out says that you can resist the Holy Ghost. I, I, I guess Calvinists ain't never been around a Baptist church very long because uh, most of the people I know are pretty adept. If they was giving out Olympic medals, they'd be wearing a gold one at resisting the Holy Ghost. The fact is, we have free will and choice and God can work in your heart, but only to the degree that you're willing to. You have the ability. God respects your free will. He will not force you or make you do anything that you do not want to do by volition, by obedience, by surrender. And as such, the Holy Ghost can work in your heart and life. But we have the choice, the ability. It's a shame, but we do. We can resist the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what happens when we resist the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. When we resist the Holy Ghost, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It troubles Him. It disturbs Him. It bothers Him. We could say it this way, it breaks His heart. Because after all, all He wants is what's best. You know God don't deal with you because He ain't got nothing better going on. God don't deal with you because He's just bored. God didn't wake up and say, I ain't got nothing better to do. I'm going to ruin their their day. No, God deals with you because He loves you, because He's interested in your life and because He wants what's best for you. So when we resist the Holy Spirit, it grieves Him. It troubles. It breaks the heart of God. It breaks the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, if we do that long enough, listen to what the Bible says. Uh, in Acts 7, we're told we can resist the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians 4.30, we're told we can grieve the Holy Ghost. Listen to how Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says, quench not the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to quench something? It means to hamper it, to stifle it, to try to snuff it out. And can I say this tonight? It's possible in our lives, though the Holy Ghost of God is never going to leave us if we're born again. If we tell Him to hush long enough, He's just apt to sit back and let our painful experiences teach us the lesson that we will not hear and heed from His precious voice. I'd say it this way. Uh, sometimes when you're in far off places and you want to be there and you won't yield to God and you won't listen to God, sometimes that dove has to get silent in order for us to finally come back to God. I think David is experiencing something like this in his life. And when we look at Psalms 56, I've done, I've done preaching an introduction that I said I wasn't going to preach, so we're going to have to move quick through the text. But I, I want you to notice a few things in our text with that in your mind. In your life and mine, when we're living in disobedience to God, when God has dealt with us, but we have pushed Him away, we have told Him that matter is off limits, it's off the table, it's not within the, the window of discussion, and God has been stifled in our life, and He's not been given free liberty to speak boldly unto us, what happens in our life? Well, when I, when I read through the 56th Psalm, I, I get an idea of what that looks like. For instance, let me notice a few things. Look back at verse 1. Notice how this psalm begins. It says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Now what does it mean to oppress? We think of oppression as being an external experience and certainly a, a person can be externally oppressed. But that don't sound like what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about an oppression on the inside. He says, My enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high God. What happens when the dove is silent? I'd say number one tonight, when the dove is silent, there's no peace in our hearts. You know the first place you're going to sense something wrong is in your heart. 
Uh, that's the that, that's the jurisdiction and purview. That's the immediate place of dealing that God does in our hearts and minds. He can work on our on our, our our intellect. He can work on our experiences. He can work on our comfort and our leisure. But God chooses because He wants us to love Him and serve Him. The first place that He serves notice in our life is in our heart. And what's the first thing that happens to the psalmist when he gets out of the will of God? All that peace that used to live in his heart, it ain't there no more. He hadn't lost God and God hadn't lost him. But now all of a sudden, the things that he once was so confident in, the things that he once walked in boldness facing, all of a sudden now, it's like they're crowding in around him. Look at the language he uses. He says, they would swallow me up. In fact, he says it twice. This is a feeling of drowning that he has. Now, ain't nothing changed. David is surrounded by enemies. But guess what? David was always surrounded by enemies. There ain't no more enemies he's got now than he had before. But now all of a sudden, the things that in boldness he could face in confidence knowing God's in control, it's like they are creeping in like water that's getting ready to dump over the side in on him. All of a sudden, that peace he had in his heart is no longer there. So there's no peace in his heart. Look down at verse number 5. Notice what he says. He says, every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Now, who's he talking about when he says they? Well, it's obvious he's talking about the Philistines that he's amongst. And what he's saying is this. I left uh, the companions that I had back in Judea. I was trusting in my mighty men and I, I left those men like Benaiah and Uriah and all those men that loved me and supported me. And now here I am in enemy territory and I'm not surrounded by people that love me. Now I'm surrounded by people that hate me, that want to destroy me. And he said, it's like everything I say, they fuss about. Everything that I talk about, they, they argue about it. Everything that I, they just rest with my words. Can I say this to you? Listen, it wasn't the Philistines fault that David showed up. David made the decision to leave the place that God had put him and go into enemy territory. The Philistines were just being what the Philistines always were. Now, the Philistines are the ones fussing and arguing with him that I would, I would, uh, I would propose to you tonight. It was not the Philistines that had changed. It was David that had changed. And you know what it's like he's saying? It's like he's saying, this place that I'm dwelling has turned into a war zone. Can I say it this way? There was no peace in his heart. But not only that, there was no peace in his home. All of a sudden now, everything's a fuss. Everything's a fight. Everything's an argument. Everybody's looking at him crossways and everybody's got a suspicious spirit and attitude about him. And can I just, let me just testify a little bit tonight. I don't know about you, but when I get out with God, uh, everybody in my home knows about it. Everybody I come across knows about it. Uh, you know, you know why that is? It, it ain't them that's changed. Oh boy, I, 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 you pray for old Toby. He's getting preached at right now. It, it ain't them that's changed. It's me that's changed. But I've got no peace in my home. It ain't them. It's me. Everything's a fight. Everything's an argument. Everything is an act of Congress. Everything, I mean, every conversation's like the act of giving birth. Somebody say amen. It's like pulling teeth everywhere you turn. And you know what you'll find when, when, when you just, when you silence, the only reason you've got any peace in your home is because of the Holy Ghost. You wouldn't have no peace in your home. You think people can get along? People can't get along. Look at how the world is. You think, you, you think what goes on in a Christian home is natural? It's not, friend. It's spiritual and it's supernatural. If you have peace in your home, it ain't because y'all like each other. It's because the Holy Ghost unfostered it. And when you get out of the will of God, what happens is all of a sudden that sense of, of calm and peace and resolve that you've enjoyed, that fellowship, because that's where peace comes from. Peace comes from fellowship. Part of the reason our world is trying is burning down right now is every man's crying for peace, peace, but there ain't nothing to have fellowship around. 
And when there's no fellowship, there's no peace. Where does the fellowship come from in our home? It comes from that common heart and unity in following and obeying God. I got news for you. Me and my wife, we don't get along because she thinks I'm so brilliant. We only get along because she trusts that I'm following God. She trusts, she has confidence in the decisions that I make. She knows if I, if I ain't, God will smite me. Amen. But now all of a sudden he gets out, there's no peace in his home anymore. Look down at verse number six. I thought this was interesting. David says this, they gather themselves together, they hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Now remember, this is a man living in enemy territory right now. Of course he is surrounded by people that want to destroy him. But you can almost imagine that he's dwelling in whatever little uh, place that he's in. And it's like every footstep that comes and, and, and walks by the door, he thinks they're headed for. It's like every noise outside, Brother Ken, it must be the, the, the soldiers getting ready to come and take him off to execute him. All of a sudden now, you know what that is? Can I use this word? It's paranoia. So there's no peace in his heart. There's no peace in his home. Now there's no peace in his head. Now all of a sudden, everyone's out to get him. And everything's getting ready to fall apart in the next moment. Can I tell you this? There's probably nobody more paranoid than a Christian out of the will of God. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about you. All of a sudden, everybody's everybody's looking at you. All of a sudden, everybody's got a vendetta against you. I'm just telling you tonight, listen, uh, when you got peace of the Holy Ghost in your heart, it don't matter if they're out to get you or not. If God's for us, who can be against us? Now, listen, I, I'm not. What's the old saying? Just because you, you know, just because you think they're out to get you, just because you're paranoid, don't mean they're not out to get you, right, Brother Ken? That's the pastor's motto. But uh, I'm saying this. You, you say, but preacher, they were out to get him. Yeah, they were, and they were before, and they will be afterwards. And his whole life, he was beset by enemies. So evidently, your peace don't come from your circumstances. Evidently, your peace comes from the Spirit of God. But now there's no peace in his head. I'd say this, look down at verse 7. We're about done with the introduction. Verse 7 says, he says, shall they escape by iniquity? Isn't that an interesting question? He says, in thine anger cast down the people, O God. Shall they escape by iniquity? Now, David knew the answer. He, he was theologian enough that he knew the answer. To that. He knew that they wouldn't. He understood instinctively in his heart. I mean, he knew enough about God to know that God is a just God and that nobody that commits sin, except it's covered by the blood of Christ, they're going to have to answer for that sin. God's going to deal with them. But now all of a sudden, he's beginning to question that. He looks up at God and says, God, are they going to get away with all this? Are they going to buy iniquity, escape? Are you going to let this happen? I'd say this, there was no peace in his heart. There's no peace in his home. There's no peace in his head. I'd say this, there's no peace in his hope anymore. The things that he once knew God was going to do, now he's starting to question. And now he's starting to doubt. He's starting to believe that God's going to let these people get away with, with iniquity and get away with ungodliness. Hey, listen, this might just be a little preaching we need in this world we're living in. You know, sometimes we get the idea, I mean, we say we're on the winning side, then we walk around like we're on the losing side. I, are, are they going to escape by iniquity? Well, I don't know. Have you read your Bible? What kind of God do you think it is that we serve? If He's the God you claim you know Him to be, then you ought to know that one of these days, God's going to raise every valley, He's going to lower every mountain, He's going to straighten every curve. And what I mean to say by that is He's going to settle all accounts one of these days. But you know what happens? When you get away from God, you begin to lose sight of that. And you begin to get in your head. It's part of that paranoia. You begin to get in your head. Well, they're going to get away with all this. 
They're going to get away with all this. I mean, you can get just slapped, tore up. I mean, just absolutely devastated when something happens because you lose sight of the fact that God is an immutable and an, and a perfect God. He loses sight of all these things. He has no peace anywhere in his life. Now, we could close there, but we're not going to. Because when I read a little further in this psalm, I see some, I see some lack of peace. I see some things that happen. But I would say this, when we come down to the end of this, of this text, David's done found his way out of this situation. There are some things that, that, that he remembers. I would say this, the dove was silenced. Listen now, but his memory wasn't. There are some things that his mind and conscience bears witness to that though he will not listen to the Holy Ghost, God still bears testimony and witness unto him through them. I notice him in our text. There's some things that struck in his mind. I'm glad to say this. We're never so far out that God can't reach us. We're never so far out that God can't reach us if we're willing to hear from him. What, what are the things that he remembers? Well, look down at verse number 8. and Notice what he says. He says, Thou tellest my wanderings. Boy, isn't that something? We think of that term wanderings in the generic. Right, as though that's just a phrase that's describing a person's journeys. But I think to a man in far off places, I think to a man dwelling down in Philistine Gath, I think to a man out of the will of God, that word wandering didn't just mean my footsteps. I think he was talking about his journey out of the will of God. He was saying, man, I, I've wandered away from God. I'm in a place, nobody at home knows where I am. Nobody back at the house understands what's going on. But he says, you know, God knows where I am. Thou tellest my wanderings. He says, put thou my tears into thy bottle. In another place in the Psalms, he says it affirmatively that God does put our tears in a bottle. Here, uh, believing in that truth, he, he, he asks God to do so. And then he asks this question, he says, it's rhetorical. He says, are they not in thy book? Now, all three of these phrases really bespeak the same truth. Thou tellest my wanderings, Lord, you know where I'm at. Put thou my tears in thy bottle. Lord, you know about my sorrows. He says, are they not in thy book? Lord, you're keeping a record. In other words, in the midst of all that, you know what he remembers? He remembers the consideration of the Lord. We could say it this way. We see here the reassurance of perception. He's reminded in the midst of all this, though he's in a far off place where I would argue he's probably having trouble finding God. And what I mean by that is the, the typical uh, terms of his relationship with God, that closeness, that intimacy has been quenched. It has been stifled. He probably feels like Job does. I go forward and he's not there. I go backwards. I can't find him. On the right hand, he's not there. On the left hand, he's not there. But he says, you know, I can't find him, but I'm confident he knows exactly where I'm at. Can I give you a little comfort tonight? Uh, you may say, well, preacher, you know, I've let some things in my life. I, I, I've, I've wandered away from God. I know I'm not where I need to be. You may not be where you need to be, but you're not so far that God doesn't know where you are. All you have to do is reach out to Him. He's waiting on you. He remembers the consideration of the Lord. Number two, look down to verse number nine. He says this, when I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Man, we could preach on that for hours. I like that last phrase. He says, for God is for me. You know, it's almost like he's saying he has an advocate with God. It's almost like he's saying he's got an advocate with God. And you know what he says? He says, you know, I'm so far out and I'm not hearing the voice of God anymore and I'm not walking with God the way that I need to, but I know that when I cry unto Him, I know He's going to hear me. 
because I know I've got an advocate with the Father. We could say this, he remembers the consideration of the Lord. Number two, he remembers the communion with the Lord that he used to have. In the midst of all of it, he hadn't forgot how to pray. He knew he could still talk to God. Though he was far out, though his life was messed up, though things weren't the way that he wished they were, though things weren't the way that he hoped them to one day be, he says in the midst of all of it, I do know this, that if I pray, he'll hear. If I call, he'll answer. You say, preacher, I've made mistakes, I've messed up. You may have, but can I tell you the way back? Now is the way back that it's always been. Reach out to Him. Cry out unto Him. Pour out your heart unto Him. And He'll hear if you'll cry unto Him. I see He remembers the communion with the Lord. I see something else. Uh, Look what it says down in verse number 3. Now we're going to look in two places here, but in verse 3 He says this, What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. Verse number 4 He says this, In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Verse 10, notice he says it again. In God I will pray, will I praise his word. In case we didn't hear it the first couple times, he says it again. In the Lord will I praise his word. In other words, looming largely in the psalmist's mind is the truth, the veracity, the immutability, and the inerrancy of God's precious word. You know what he remembers? He remembers the commandments of the Lord. The record of precepts that God has for him. It's almost like he says this, you know, I'm in a place where don't nobody believe what I believe, but you know, the word of God is still true. Can I tell you this? Increasingly in this world, we're dwelling in a place where people don't believe what we believe, but you know, the word of God is still true. I hate to serve notice on you tonight, but I don't see in the future our nation getting more spiritually minded. But you know, no matter how bad things get, God's word will still be true. When men gnash on us with their teeth for, for believing it, when it is outlawed and criminalized and, and when it is, uh, when it is ostracized and a man is treated as though he's a leper merely for saying he believes in the God of the Bible, it won't change anything. Listen, heaven and earth can pass away, but his word will not pass away. Empires have been shattered to pieces on the anvil of God's immutable word, but it's never going to change and it's never going to be less true. You say, preacher, I've messed up. Well, you may have messed up, but what was true when you was in Bethlehem is still true when you're in Gath. What was true when you was in the will of God is still true when you're out of the will of God. And that word of God has not changed. We can still rely on His truth and His word and His promises. What He commands and what He delivers unto us in His word will hold true. No matter how far out we get, His word stays the same. He remembers the commandments of the Lord. Look down at verse 12. He says this, Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. I'd say this, he remembers his commitment to the Lord. He he says to the Lord, you know, a lot has changed. I've messed up and I've got out. But that's not changed what I've committed unto you and what you've asked of me. Sometimes we get the idea that God grades on a curve. We get the idea that if a person uh, gets out, that, and I would agree to this, the, the preeminent priority is getting back in. But just because you've spent time out, that don't mean that when you get back in, you shouldn't get in as deep as you were before you got out. Sometimes we get the idea like when we've messed up in our life, that gives us an excuse to to shift into a a lower gear and just back off and and just say, well, you know, I I used to teach Sunday school. I used to this. I used to that. I used to go out soul winning. I used to this and that. I don't do that anymore. But hey, at least I'm coming to church. 
Well, hey, listen, at least you're coming to church. What about them things you promised God? Just because you've been out, that don't mean when you get back in, you shouldn't get all back in. And he remembers what that commitment was. He says, you know, I made those promises to God, and I may be out now, but those promises are still true. They're, they're still, I'm still held accountable for those things. I think we need to be a lot more careful about promising things to God. I, I don't think God takes vows as lightly as we do. I understand we're living under a dispensation of grace. I understand the standard of our relationship with God is not vows that we make or promises that we make. But I'd say this, uh, God is just honest enough to take a man at his word. When we tell God we're going to do something, we ought to do it. And just because we get out, that don't mean those things go away. Uh, by the way, what was his vow? He says, I will render praises unto thee. He recognizes that part of that commitment is to deliver the sacrifice of his lips unto the Lord to praise God for his goodness in his life. So he remembers that. That ain't changed. You know, uh, when, the, when the prodigal came back home, he didn't say, uh, you know, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. Now make me the favorite son again. He said, I'm not worried to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. In other words, he said, there has to be a load of chores that have piled up while I've been messing around down in the far country. And Lord, uh, Father, I've come back to carry out my responsibilities. I, I would say this. He, he remembers the commitment of the Lord. Let me, let me mention one more thing and I'm done tonight. Look down at verse 13. All this is predicated on one simple truth. He's talking to God because of one simple truth. He's believing in God because of one simple truth. It is all based upon this. He says in verse 13, For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? We could spend hours here and we won't. We'll spend just a few moments. There's some folks have the idea that God delivered our soul from death so that He could let our feet fall. I want to be very clear here. Even though we mess up, God don't throw us away. God's aware. He knows our frame, but we're but dust. When God saved you, He knew what He was getting into. He ain't surprised when you mess up. Some Christians treat it like they've breached contract with God. I got news for you. You're saved by contract, but it wasn't a contract that God made with you. It was a contract God made with Himself. Book of Hebrews, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a, a strong anchor for the soul, a refuge uh, for the soul. Uh, the, the contract, the promise He made wasn't between you and Him, it was between Him and Himself. When we believe on the Lord, uh, we're trusting in His promise that He's made unto Himself. But I'd say this, some people have the idea that God saves us and they don't care how we live. But you know, the psalmist says, I, I can't help but believe, Lord, You delivered my soul from death. God, you delivered me. I can't help but think it's your will that I not live in this, in this stumbling, falling manner. Can I say God saved you and it's not his will that you live in disobedience? We're all going to mess up. If you find one that hasn't, look a little closer. They're lying to you. We're all going to mess up. I don't care who you are, but it's not the will of God that we live out all the time. It's not the will of God that we're hot and cold all the time. It's not the will of God. We have the idea that it's being hot and being cold. That ain't what God calls it. He calls it lukewarm and He says, I'll spew you out. I'm not interested in that. Uh, we think of it as I'm on fire for God now and then I get messed up and get out for a little while and then I get on fire for God and then I get out for a little while. That ain't how God described it. He says, I would you either hot or cold. He said, you're not either of those things. You are lukewarm. Uh, we identify lukewarmness. I might just preach a little bit. We identify lukewarmness with just apathy. But you know how water becomes lukewarm. 
right? A little bit of hot, a little bit of cold, a little bit of hot, a little bit of cold. I, I've got, I just put a hot water heater in at the house and, and the way that hot water heater works, it, it does not gauge and measure and, and moderate the temperature of the water. It mixes the two. There's a valve that lets hot through. There's a valve that lets cold through. The hot that it lets through is as hot as anything in the tank. The cold that it lets through is as cold as anything in the ground. But when you have a measure of each, that's when it becomes lukewarm. Lukewarmness is not solely identified with apathy. I think apathy is lukewarmness. That's the product. But how does that happen? It happens by being hot and then being cold and then being hot and then being cold. Listen, we're all going to mess up. I don't care who you are. But don't you think for one minute that God's okay with, with us falling and failing and messing up all the time? That's not the will of God. That's not what He desires. His grace is abundant. His grace is sufficient. His grace is enough to deal with it when we mess up. Somebody say amen to that. But let us never think that God has saved us under license. He saved us under liberty. He's not saved us under, under permissiveness. He saved us under purity. And His desire is not that we live uh, with a constant state of failing and falling. The psalmist says, listen, you saved me from death. You delivered me from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling? God, I know it is your will that I not live like this. And therefore, I'm going to passionately pursue a higher spiritual relationship with you, a higher standard. I didn't even give you my point. Let me just say this. He remembers the conquering of the Lord. He says, in all that, I know that God ain't ready to throw me away because he saved me. And it must not be His will that I live like this because He saved me. You think God did all He did on Calvary just to give us a seat in heaven and then jettison us at the first chance and say, well, see you later. You live any old way you want. That ain't why God saved you. God didn't save you so you could live far off in Philistine country. God saved you so that you could live close in intimate fellowship and relationship with Him. Say, preacher, I've messed up. The dove has got silent. I've told him to hush one too many times. Listen, that may be true. But understand, that doesn't mean He's forsaken you. It doesn't mean He's abandoned you, nor does it mean that God's promises have changed. I would say it this way. God is exactly where you left Him. If you'll just reach out to Him, you'll find Him there. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. Father, I pray that You'd bless now this invitation. And I pray that Your people would get help from You. Lord, I love You. I thank You for Your Word. I ask it in Christ.